Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandal Mongers podcast. Well, we're back to the Royals again this week. We were going to take a break, but actually we had a very good opportunity to talk to Michael Cole, who uh, I think will be very interesting. It returns us to the subject of Diana and Diana's death. Uh, and I think there'll be some fascinating new insights. Yes, we were going to take a break from the Royals. Honestly, we were. Because a few people actually have said, you're doing too much royal stuff. Um, on the other hand, a lot of people also enjoy it. Though we were planning to do a program on Jimmy Savile, but that had to be delayed. And as Andrew says, we had the chance to speak to Michael Cole, who has a really, he's got a terrific insight into all this. Because for 10 years, he worked for the Fired family, the El Fired family. Yeah, and, and before that, as the BBC Royal Correspondent, uh, I've been talking to him from my Andrew book, and he's full of fascinating information of that period. And he's quite forthright. You know, I think a lot of Royal Correspondents can be quite um, careful, but he's and he's always very articulate and um, uh, always has something interesting to say. I remember him from the Brighton bombing. I mean, he was one of the BBC's top reporters. Um, when they tried to assassinate the cabinet, do you remember? And he was part of that coverage. I do, yeah. yeah. No, I think we forget all these royal reporters often had other careers doing very, very different sorts of subjects. And, and I think that's what makes them such good journalists. But, um, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, because he's very much gone on the record as, as saying that there are unanswered questions about Diana's death and one of the few journalists uh, to, to do that. So well, also he's one of the few people that um, you know knew personally Dodi and Diana and saw them yeah. through that relationship and saw the role that Mohammed Al Fayed played or didn't play in it. 
Um, and uh, that'll be really, I want to ask him more about that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there's often a certain narrative that's emerged, and it's not necessarily the true narrative, and someone like that may have some new insights into it. Um, so I, I think it'll be a good royal episode, and even if we perhaps take a break from the next couple of weeks and go on to other subjects. But it all depends on the listeners, what they want to Well, to, it to does. Hear. And if you have that, a couple of reviews on, on Apple, said I'm getting tired of data, so you can just flip to the next one, if you like. But I'll stay and listen, because I think you'll find Michael is a, has a very different voice, and, and he's not spoken much. In fact, he told us we had a funny exchange with him. Uh, he doesn't really know what a podcast is. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, no. I mean, I think he's he's quite a coup to get. So he's not but he's it's... not done much of this. Um, um, and he actually was teasing me because I'm, I'm just back from Madeira, where I was in the last episode, showing off from my balcony. And um, he's been there a lot too, but in a rather posher hotel called Reeds. So he's been teasing me about that. So I expect that will come up in the interview as well. Yeah, no, I'm sure it will. And how, what are the comments coming in? And how are the, how are the, the viewing figures? Because I think it, it's clear the royals are the things that people seem to be listening know, People to do listen. love the royal stuff. I mean, you know, what's interesting to me, though, is that some of our older shows still get a lot of attention and are growing. I think we're approaching 200,000 downloads now across YouTube, Apple, Spotify, which is, um, I think we, somebody once said to us, if you do 100,000 in a year, you'll have done well. So we've doubled that. Uh, and yeah, yeah, a lot of new people finding us. Um, the, the conversation with Richard Kay, I think it's our seventh most popular ever, and it's only been up four days. Um, Quiet Australian 2284. Rev D. Wendy. Swan. oh, excuse me. I'm going to have to not take that. Swan. Donald Black, 5530. Consistently great series. Thank you both. Looking at all your other shows. Uh, absolutely brilliant podcast is Carol Roy. I'm going back looking at all the old shows. So that's the model, I think. People find us through a royal story. And yep. then suddenly they find themselves interested in what we said about COVID or the post office crisis or any of the other things we've done. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, I mean, someone suggested we, should, we do something on the Oaks murder in the Bahamas in 1943. And I would certainly be happy to, to speak to, to that uh, yes. or to find someone who could talk to that. Uh, yes, and, and uh, we're looking at more miscarriages of justice stories coming up. Uh, like I say, Jimmy Savile, which is an amazing story. So lot, lots to enjoy. But I think Michael might surprise people. I think he's probably going to be a bit different to the average royal pundit. Yeah, yes, I think so. And, and, and no doubt we'll have lots of reactions to report on next week. Yes, please tell us what you think. See you soon. Bye. Well, I, I was going to start, actually, by asking you to talk a little bit about your experience at must have been an extraordinary experience over many years working for the Fired family, who don't always get a very positive account of you know in the media. But you were so close to them for so long. I'd love to know what your you know what you took away from that. I knew Mohammed before I worked for him. Uh, I knew him for eighteen months, two years before I worked for him. I went and made a film called The Uncrowned Jewels, which was about the jewelry that the Duke of Windsor lavished upon Mrs. Simpson, who became the Duchess of Windsor. Uh, and that was my title for it. Somebody said, well, they'll call it the Wallace Collection. I said, well, people won't understand the Wallace Collection unless they're devotees of, of fine arts. But the uncrowned jewels was accurate because, of course, he was never crowned. Um, and that film which was uh, broadcast at uh, around Easter time, 
1957 to uh, to to coincide with the record-breaking auction of um, the Duchess of Windsor's jewels in Geneva. That program was seen by 14 million eyeballs. It was the most popular uh, documentary that was ever on the BBC, apart from the royal family. And that film, although made by the BBC, was uh, the Queen's property. She retained the copyright, as she does to this day. So I, making that film, I actually needed to get to film inside the Windsor Villa in the Bois de Boulogne, just outside the centre of Paris, where they lived and indeed where both of them died, um, the Duke of Windsor in 1972 and the Duchess in May uh, 86. And after after she died, Mohammed was offered the house by the mayor of Paris, Jacques Chirac, who later became the president of France. And he was uh, uh, he took it over and, and Chirac said to him, look, you know, you've made such a wonderful job of the Ritz Hotel uh, and you have connections in Britain. Would you like to take over this house? Uh, so Mohammed said he would take it over. It was quite an interesting little house, a bijou house, if you will. Uh, as a stately home, it had originally been built by Mr. Renault, Monsieur Renault, but Monsieur Renault had collaborated rather enthusiastically with, with the Nazis during the occupation uh, of, of France, and he was forfeited his house. And after the war, it was owned by the French state, and I think an ex-king of Morocco had lived there for a bit. Anyway, the Windsors, who were at a loose end, they'd had apartments in Paris before the war. Uh, they took it over and he died there and she died there. So Mohammed took it over. And as a result of that, I met Mohammed. I made the film. It went out. It was successful. And then about 18 months later, he invited me to, to join his company. Well, of course, I thought I was going to be at the BBC forever. Uh, I was that sort of loyal lifer person. I was only one of the foot soldiers, but I actually thought that public service broadcasting meant something and was important. Uh, and I was um, I was loyal to it. The BBC is never loyal to you, though, unfortunately. I risked my life on many occasions, put myself and my crew in dangerous positions. But um, the BBC takes no account of that. So I thought at the age of 45, which I then was, uh, I thought, well, if I stay here another six years or seven years, they'll get rid of me, as they got rid of much better correspondence than myself when they reached that age, not realizing that experience has value. Uh, so I thought, well, OK, I'm going to swap the BBC uh, for Harrods, um, uh, both names which are known around the world. Um, and after some hesitation, I, I did so. And I didn't do so for the money because I was paid not much more than I was getting at the BBC. And I stayed there for 10 years. And I wouldn't have worked for Mohammed if I didn't like him. And I did like him. I've always liked him. And I, I, I liked him after I worked for him. What were the qualities about him that you liked? He's very generous and very kind uh, and very thoughtful person. Uh, anybody who was in trouble, particularly if they had a health problem, uh, he would immediately intervene and help them. I mean, he would uh, he'd see somebody in the shop having trouble with their back or something. He'd send them straight off to Harley Street to have some attention. We had a managing director who had a prostate uh, gland uh, cancer problem. I mean, he put him straight on his airplane to America. Uh, of course, they do the operation in this country. Uh, equally as well, but Mohammed thought 
this surgeon in America was a specialist. He did that. I mean, he was like a walking pharmacy. He had pills. To sell. I mean, he walked around the place, say, if you've got a cold or you've got something. He always had something. He was extremely kind and particularly to families he didn't even know uh, who were in trouble. And um, I would I would be the abominable no man. I'd say, we don't need to do all this stuff. We don't need to help these families, children who were in trouble. And he'd say, no, 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 no. Uh, we do something good, you come back as something wonderful. You do something bad, you come back as some a snake or an ant or a rat. So I said, Mohammed, this is not Islam. This is not Christianity. This is Buddhism, you know, reincarnation. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We do something good. It, it will be good for us. And he had that approach to life. If I told you that every month, every single month, um, he gave to four different uh, children's hospices around this country, £40,000 each in Liverpool, in Manchester, uh, in, in, in Surrey, and, and there was one in Kent. And those, those people relied upon that. So taxed money that he paid tax on, he gave them each. You added up 40 grand each uh, every month because that was children's hospices, and he felt that that was important. Because um, his reputation is nothing like what you're describing. Most people, and I remember the spitting image at the time, led the way. He was a bad-tempered, foul-mouthed, aggressive caricature it doesn't sound well, anything like what you're saying well believe you me uh mohammed never ever raised his voice to me and he never used profane language of any kind any time i mean i swore at him i i've heard far much worse in bbc newsrooms and other newsrooms i've lived in throughout my career what passes from my career dreadful stuff and I, I, I occasionally lost my temper with him, usually twice a year. I resigned on a couple of occasions and, and then came back. But he was always even-tempered. And, and when I'd had an outburst, uh, he, 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 would, he would send a, a glass of rich champagne up the corridor to my office. And he'd say, he'd say to my PA, tell Michael to calm down. Just tell him to calm down. Silly boy, be quiet. You see, but my, my job was to be the abominable no man. He didn't need a yes man. He had plenty of people saying yes to him. My job was to say no. And, and uh, it, it, there are in this life, there are for every ten ideas, there's there's one good one. The nine bad ones have to be strangled quietly without putting too many people's noses out of joint. And when you get a good idea, you get behind that. So my my purpose there was to say no about things. But listen, I didn't have any illusions about it. I was working for him. He accomplished a great deal in his life, all of, most of it before he ever met me. Uh, all I was there was to advise and to do my best. Fortunately, I'd worked extensively in the Middle East. I'd worked in about 16 out of the 22 Arab countries and in, and in uh, Israel. Uh, Lebanon, all of these places, 10 years of civil war in, 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 in Beirut and so on. So I understood a little bit about the Arab mindset, but he would say, no, 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 I'm Egyptian, Michael. I'm not an Arab, you know, because, um, Alexandria was the epitome. It was the essence of cosmopolitanism before 1848, 1948, when the state of Israel was established. There were about a third of a million 
Jews lived in Alexandria, the second biggest city in the world, Jews. New York was number one. Second was Alexandria. At the time, Tel Aviv was just a sand dune, uh, a little bit up the coast. And Muhammad would say, you know, there was everybody there, Turks, Greeks, Copts, Maronite Christians. Everybody was mixed together. Um, and he said it was a fantastic place to grow up. And he said to me, his father was, he would say, a professor of Arabic. He was an Arabic teacher, very learned. Uh, and when I ever see pictures of his father, I see also his brother, Ali, looked extremely like his father. Muhammad didn't. And Muhammad said, I learned everything I, I learned from my grandfather. He was a merchant. He had a mer he had a, a warehouse and next to an old Jewish merchant. And those two men, they taught me everything I knew about business. And I like Muhammad because he was go ahead. He had vision and he single handedly uh, rescued the department store. Before Muhammad came along, department stores were regarded as dusty dowager duchesses with them um, with little prospect of a future. And uh, they were all closing down. If I mentioned Bourne and Hollingsworth you, to you, Marshall and Snellgrove, Woolens, oh, yes. uh, uh, all of these shops don't exist any longer. And they were, it was all boutiques and people were going away from department stores. Well, Mohammed didn't have that. He wouldn't have it. And he invested of his own money about 600 million pounds over 25 years, a quarter of a century. And because he, uh, invested in the department store and the idea of the department store and upgraded it. Uh, the others, Harvey Nichols and Selfridges, had to raise their act, which they did very successfully. It's an absolutely wonderful example of competition working. So well, it's, I, no, it's, it's a really, it's so nice and refreshing to hear this take on him. I, mean, I, well, also, I, I have to ask, did you get to know his son Dodi at this time as well? Of course. Uh, of we course, want to come uh, to that relationship with Dodi and Diana. Of course, of course. But I, I wrote an article which was published uh, at the time of his death, uh, which I gladly uh, emailed to you. Um, it was published in more than one publication. And, and if your podcast customers want a copy of it, it actually tells you far more than I can tell you in this brief conversation. But I liked him and he was a family man. He was not the slightest bit interested in society, going to nightclubs, being going to the right restaurants. Um, he, he was interested in, in his family. He was interested in his customers. He was interested in his staff and he was interested in his businesses. And, um, I mean, he loved, he so loved Harrods that if he went on holiday, he, he couldn't stay away more than four days wherever he was in the world. He would fly back just to make sure his mistress, if you like, hit the store, was ticking over. It was, of course, it was ticking over all right without him, but he just missed it and he came. In fact, the only time I remember him being away from the store for more than four days was the terrible week uh, when uh, his eldest son and the family's dear friend Diana were killed. Well, can we talk more? Can we talk more about that? Because I'd, I'd love to know you, you, you paint a very surprising and refreshing picture of, of Muhammad, well, what Dodi well, was like. You've been, you've been influenced by, by uh, a, a scruffy little magazines written by schoolboys that characterize him. I mean, I, I, with my hand on my heart, I swear that I never heard Muhammad swear ever. Fantastic. Oh, look, that's so interesting. But can we move on to Dodi and Diana? Because 
Um, Andrew um, maybe would, would like to ask a question. It's just me at the moment. Sorry, but uh, I'm very keen to know what what you made of Dodi and, and that romance and where it was going. Well, it's a huge question. Uh, I'm the only person in the world who knew all three people who were killed that night. I knew Henri Paul. He used to drive me around in Paris. Uh, we got on quite well. Uh, and I'll tell you how much I faith in, I had in him. My, my, my wife was never a BBC wife. She was never uh, wanting to associate herself with her husband, what he was doing. It was, she wasn't that sort of person. So she very rarely came with me on holiday or on business. And my, but my wife and daughter did come with me on one occasion to Paris because it, 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 the, the cards fell right. And Henri Paul drove them around during that day to museums and wherever they wanted to go. Do you think I would have allowed uh, a man of terrible character who would be a drunken driver uh, to drive them around, my wife and daughter? Of course not. I knew him. Um, incidentally, uh, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, John Stevens, Lord Stevens, um, when he went to the uh, British Embassy, during his inquiries, the Paget inquiry, he said to Henri Paul's parents, who were just very ordinary people from Brittany who'd come up on the train. I think probably it was the only time they'd ever been to Paris. They were ordinary, nice people. And he said, putting out his arms, your son will not be blamed. He will not be blamed for this terrible tragedy. That was witnessed by the detective uh, inspector, James Scotchbrook, who was with him, and she gave evidence to it. And, of course, when the Paget report was published on the 17th of December uh, 2007, he, he was blamed. And that report itself, of course, was prejudicial. Everybody knew that there was an inquest pending, the two inquests, the dual inquest of Dodie and Diana. Uh, and yet the police brought out this um this report, which uh, sought to be judge and jury before a jury had even been empaneled. So make of you what, what of that what you wish. Uh, but I thought it was disgraceful. I thought it was prejudicial. It should never have been done, and particularly in that way. But to answer your question, um, of course, I knew Dodie for 12 years. I knew D Diana for 12 years. As the BBC court correspondent, I went round the world with with, with uh, Diana uh, when she was Princess of Wales and when she was Diana, Princess of Wales, uh, after her divorce. And of course, I knew them both. Um, I wasn't a buddy of theirs. I didn't go out to dinner. They didn't ask me round for afternoon tea. It wasn't that sort of relationship. But I got on with them both very well. I liked Dodie. I liked him. He was a gentle and kind and very generous and nice person. And it actually is very hurtful to see dreadful things said about him, which I know personally to be untrue. Um, but what can you do? Uh, with regard to Diana, uh, we were, uh, we had a, we had, I was a reporter. She was being reported upon. She was very street smart. You know, when she said, I'm as thick as two short planks, absolutely wrong. She read the room all the time. She was very uh, astute. Uh, she knew what we were doing. She knew how to give a pose that would make her look good. And of course, she never, rather like Marilyn Monroe, she never took a bad photograph. She always looked great whenever you saw her. And I liked her. I really liked her. And you know what? The real secret of the world's fascination with Diana Spencer, Lady Diana Spencer, Diana, 
Princess of Wales as she was when she died. The real fascination is this, that Diana put people in touch with the better side of themselves. Uh, we all have faults. Uh, she had faults. She didn't think she was an angel. She didn't think she was perfect. She didn't think she was wonderful. But she did good things and she made a difference and she was kind and she was loving and she was a, a, a perfect person. And she did a tremendous amount for the royal family. There she was, their star, and they could do nothing but criticize her and try to bring her down. It was quite, quite terrible. But she had humor too, and she saw the, the funny side of it. You have to remember, you know, the key to this is quite simple. Diana was a six-year-old child. She stood by the gate. Her mother, Frances, walked out on her beloved father, Johnny, walked out, left the children alone. She, she and Charles, her, her brother, who was younger than her, were, were young, very young at that stage. The two older sisters were a little bit more capable of coping with a situation like that. And I believe that Diana, throughout her life, what she wanted is was to regain what she lost. And what she lost was a happy family life. And when she saw the fires, uh, she was in a happy family. And I think that's what attracted her to Dodie more than anything initially was how wonderful he was with his own four siblings, his half-brothers and sisters, although Mammy would say, not half-brothers, they are, they are brothers, they are sisters, you know, not half-brothers. But he was terrific. Uh, they regarded him as an older brother, Dodi, with his, uh, with Mohammed's four, four children, with his uh, wife, Haney. And I think that that would have rung a bell with her. And Diana loved being with the Fired family because they were relaxed. They were not on formal terms. They didn't, you know, their royals, her royal status and, and, and her son's royal status didn't matter. I mean, of course, they respected a bit and they knew about it, but it wasn't a factor in the in the in the in the friendship that was there. And I think when she saw Dodie, who was uh, tremendously kind uh, with his own siblings, she could see. And of course, the the fire children were around the same ages as as, as William and Harry were at that time. I mean, when they were in Saint-Tropez, because they were, there was press interest after it became known that she was there, of course, on the Saturday morning, which I remember quite clearly, um, they couldn't really go anywhere except on their boats to get away from, from, from people. So Dodie hired the, the, the leading discotheque in Saint-Tropez for the evening. And of course, they all went there and they asked their friends, they asked their trusted friends so they could have an evening out. They didn't want to be, completely just kept in this hermetic, hermetically sealed bubble of the Mohammed's estate there. And he would do things like that. And he was, he was very thoughtful. I, as a man, I can never really understand what women see in a man. Therefore, you know, <laughs> I'm, I, I've never been, women have never been a great fan of mine. But one, my wife, who's very shrewd, she said, she said, Dodie is so just lovely to talk to. And he had, uh, Diana loved his sort of mid-Atlantic mid voice halfway between the Middle East and Los Angeles somewhere. And she recorded 
messages he left on her phone and played them to her friends and said, listen to his voice. Well, I think men fall in love through their eyes, women through their ears. It's what they hear. Uh, that makes the most. I mean, I've known women who said I couldn't marry any man with a horrible voice. You know, That's so interesting. It, a, voice, a voice matters. Yeah. Men are stupid. They just look at the woman, the figure, you know, the hair. Uh, women not. They listen. They listen. So this love, this love that they had, you know, do you think they were destined to marry? Were they, in fact, engaged at the end? Well, uh, of course. Um, of course they were. Uh, Dodie was uh, told me on more than one occasion how deeply he was in love with Diana. I would not have presumed to have asked Diana, Princess of Wales, about her personal life. I just wouldn't have done it. But the last time I saw her, and that was before the third holiday that fateful summer, and she was going away and she was going to meet Dodie, and we, we had a chat, and she was full of, more full of joy and happiness than I've ever seen her. She was really on form. Uh, she was relaxed. She was looking forward to the future. And, of course, there are plenty of people out there the naysayers, the people who have their own little agendas. And they will say, well, of course, it was a holiday romance. It was just a fling. Well, first of all, I think that that is total nonsense because I have more respect for Diana, Princess of Wales, than that. Um, Diana would not have done anything that would have embarrassed her sons, knowing they were going to go back to school and they would be teased. So if she was involved with any man, it had to be serious. This is in my mind. It had to be serious. And bear this in mind, this was her first affair since she was divorced. Uh, the other affairs she'd had were when she was separated uh, from her husband, and they were covert, they were hidden, uh, and they were carried out in some difficulty. And nobody knew about them. But on this, on the boat and elsewhere, there were, besides the crew and besides the valet and her, her lady's maid, it was only them there. It was quite clear what the nature of the relationship was. And Diana, you know, um, believed that the Americans would give her a break She'd been to America several times. I was, I accompanied her on her first trip to America as a reporter. And she believed that the American media would give her the break that she would not get in this country or would never get in this country. And Dodie had bought a house on the beach at Malibu, which had been owned by Julie Andrews and her film producer husband, Blake Edwards. And, uh, I'd seen all the documents. I think it was Savills International, uh, a big brochure and, and a floor plan. And Dodie had said to Diana, we'll go and live in Malibu. And the people who say, well, of course, it, it was just a fling, uh, they can't, including her butler, Paul Burrell. But Burrell, in one or two of his books, recounts how the boss, which is how he called the princess, came home very excited uh, to Kensington Palace and laid out on the rug in the drawing room 
the plans of this house and said, look, we're going to live in Malibu. Uh, this is where you're going to be with Maria, that's Burrell's wife. This is where your two boys will be, their bedrooms. This is the dance floor. This is the dance studio. This is the gym. This is the master bedroom. And she was excited about it. And uh, so Burrell, who says, of course, uh, it was just a fling. It wasn't serious. He was getting ready to go to, 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 to Malibu. So what was all that about? Because I tell you what it was about. Diana believed and Hollywood, it, the currency is celebrity. There is nothing else. And also the Americans, unlike Britain, Britain is the home of nostalgia. The broken down actors who can't get any work in Hollywood, they all come here and they appear in pantomime and, and whatever else they do. This goes way back to uh, to uh, to Ben Lyon and B.B. Daniels before your time, of course, either of you. But Hollywood stars who come here and find a new career. America wants the next thing. What's new? What's next? Novelty is everything there. And Dinah believed that after a while, they'd get used to her and Dodie. And, you know, if you are in Hollywood and you go to Safeway and you're checking out your groceries and Kevin Costner's at the next checkout and, you know, uh, uh, Kurt Douglas's. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. One is the other one. Who cares? After a while, celebrity becomes commonplace. And I believe, I mean, Harry, Prince Harry, her son, has said in terms that he's living out his mother's destiny by going to California. Well, you know, uh, maybe he knows more than I, I did. But your question was, did they, were they engaged? I think that was what the question was. Well, René Delorme, who for a long time had been valet to Dodie, said that at the apartment uh, in uh, the Rue Ensemble Rousset, just, just uh, down from the uh, Arc de Triomphe, which I've stayed at on more than one occasion, uh, he said that Dodie told him to put champagne on ice and he was 
had a ring which he'd bought and which the Dutch, which the princess had seen. It, it had been sold by the Iranian uh, French uh, jeweler, Repuzi. It had been sold in France as Dis-moi oui, tell me yes. That was the advert, a display advert for this ring. Does that suggest to you, tell me yes, it might have been an engagement ring? Does it, gentlemen? I don't know. But well, no, was... I think I think it probably does. And um, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm conscious that Andrew hasn't asked a question, and I'm doing all the talking. Sorry, Andrew. No, no, oh, it well, well, let, 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 let me let me just tell you this because I I, I think the the crown has got it all wrong. I mean, what happened the afternoon before they were so terribly killed? What happened was that uh, Dodi they'd seen they'd be, they'd been ashore. In Monte Carlo, they'd been to Reposi. They'd they'd seen uh, a representation of the Dimoi Oui ring, but it wasn't there. So Reposi, who is very businesslike, said it'll be in Paris when you when you get to Paris. And when they were in Paris, that's one of the reasons they went there. They dropped in there for a last romantic night before they went home at the end of their holiday, as many couples would have done in more modest circumstances, perhaps. But haven't we all done it? And Dodi went across with the deputy manager of the Ritz Hotel, and uh, the ring was there, and he he selected it and two other rings, and they they came they went back to uh, the Ritz, and while the manager paid the bill and arranged all the details, and she selected the ring, Dimoui. And the other two rings were put in the safe to be returned because the shop had closed on Monday morning. That's what happened. But anybody else will tell you uh, whatever they want to hear because they want to make out that, that the princess was not going to, to be involved. Now, were they going to marry? I don't know. There's so much we don't know. Um, but uh, the champagne was on ice. The ring was on the bedside. Dodie told me on one, more than one occasion uh, and emphatically how much in in love they were. But, you know, let me just tell you this, because uh, it, it's circumstantial, but it's extremely strong circumstantial evidence. Um, Dodie and Diana flew in a helicopter to an obscure village in Derbyshire uh, to consult a soothsayer. I don't know what the correct term for people who make predictions about your future is, but one of those people who casts the runes and tells you your future. And Diana had consulted this woman for many, many years and apparently believed uh, what she said. And the woman in question, who does feature, I think, in the crowd, has said, I mean, she consulted, they consulted her. Now, why would two people fly in a helicopter on a quite a, a misty morning and had difficulty finding the house, and the helicopter had to fly up and down the valley to find the house. Go there privately together. Would it, could it possibly be, gentlemen, that they were saying, do we have a future together? What is our future together? Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is they stayed together afterwards. They went back to Mohammed's country estate. They stayed the night. And then they had another holiday together, and that was the last one. We shall never know. No, we I just, we, 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 obviously, we won't. 
I was just conscious of the time and not to take too much of your time because you're. No, no, it's <laughs> fascinating. I mean, why do you say Paul Henri Henri Paul was was scapegoated? I mean, because I I know you have questions about some of the way that the the, the inquest and things were covered. Well, if you look at the film, which I knew I knew before the uh, funeral of Diana that, of course, the Archbishop of Canterbury would call for prayers for all three people who died. Of course he would, because uh, he's a man of great decency. Uh, and, of course, he did. And at that stage, um, the Evening Standard came out with uh, uh, drunk as a <coughs> pig. Uh, the... the uh, the speedometer frozen at 180 kilometers an hour. That's 120 miles an hour. All of this utter rubbish. Mercedes said, you know, the, the, the speedometer reverts to zero. Uh, and when it came up uh, uh, in, in, in the inquest, it was proved that the maximum speed uh, ever driven that night was 61 miles an hour. Now, of course, that's fast in a town, but it was nighttime and it was on an expressway, and it's Paris. Of course it was fast, but it wasn't 120 miles an hour. And we released that film on the Friday before the funeral because you see Henri Paul parallel parking his mini outside the Ritz, walking in, interacting with people, talking to them, running up and down stairs, bending down to do up his shoelace, um, standing with Dodie as close as closer than I am to you, in other words, two feet away, um, did, was he showing any signs of drunkenness? Was he showing any signs of being incapable of anything? He's in the corridor with them at the uh, staff entrance at Rue Cambon at the back of the hotel. He runs outside. He runs back in again. He gets them into the car and he drives off. Are those the signs of somebody who's supposed to be several times over the legal limit of, of, of drink? Maybe French people can hold their drink better than other nations, but he didn't look like a drunk to me and when it came to it when it came to it uh the two uh, frenchmen uh who uh took the uh, responsibility for this the forensic uh, toxicologist and the pathologist both of them refused to give evidence to the british inquest in london even by uh, television link they refused to do it and there are very serious questions about whether the um, labelling and the and the storage, and even there could have been a mix-up between blood sim samples. Because, and this is the killer thing. You've got to listen to this little point. Henri Paul's blood has thirty percent carbon monoxide in it. The blood that was put forward as being his blood had thirty percent carbon monoxide. Now, carbon mon Oxide. If you had that amount of carbon monoxide in your blood, you would be reduced to sitting in the corner of your elegant uh, study there, holding your head, groaning and feeling extremely bad. That's what carbon monoxide does to you. But how does carbon monoxide get into people's bloodstreams? Often, and it's a very common way of committing suicide, people... Uh, put a hose from the exhaust pipe of their car into the car, they sit in the car, they drink some booze, uh, and they go to sleep, and the carbon monoxide kills them. In that morgue where Henri Paul was kept, there, were more, there was more than one 
person who had been killed in exactly that that way. Is it possible? Is it possible uh, that uh, there could have been a mix-up uh, between the blood samples? Henri Paul has been painted in the blackest terms. Uh, I don't know his family. I've never met his parents. I I'm, I believe in truth and justice. If you actually want to know more about this, and of course you do. This book, this book has everything about this, and it was written by an Australian called John Morgan. Yeah, well, we've we, actually, just, we actually interviewed him. We, we discussed it a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, um, Paul Stokes. Um, well, the last, you only have to read the last two chapters. Now, this guy, I went out to Brisbane to see him. He was a forensic accountant. He had no interest in the royal family at all. But then he was struck down with a terrible wasting disease. And while he was coping with this in this rather very, very modest little house he had on the Gold, just off, not near the seafront, on the Gold Coast of, of Queensland, he went into this with a fine-toothed comb. And he came to the conclusions he came to. And they are... They are extraordinary. As Michael Mansfield, QC, Mohammed's lawyer, barrister, said, you know, this is the magnum opus on this thing. He had no axe to grind, and he found the truth of it, which has been largely ignored by, by other people. Do, do you, that, that book, though, builds into an enormous conspiracy theory that includes Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, the CIA, the MI6, the French, I mean, is really quite a thing. And I, I don't know whether I've read it, but I've read the he, book. He, he based it only on published sources, on published sources. And, of course, now it's much more difficult to get to the record through queue for the National Archives. Well, well, but, you know, this guy, this guy, he, he, um, <laughs> he, was, he was so ill, uh, and yet he, he did this – Magnificent work. As I said, I, I went out there, there to meet him. He he moved around his house on a sort of little contraption. It's the only way he could move, and he, every few minutes he had oh. to. It, it it was it was quite awful. But why I why I think this is this fired is, fired himself though. You know, I guess it was still your boss at this point. Um, alleged Prince Philip was pulling the strings for this massive conspiracy. Did you believe it was like that, or do you think it's just unexplained details? Well, I tell you what is true, uh, because I know it to be true, and I only speak of what I've seen, heard, uh, observed with my mark one eyeball and these oversized ears heard, uh, was that Diana was extremely scared of um, the Duke of Edinburgh. She was very, very scared of him. And this manifested itself in, in several ways. Um, she made light of it in some some, some things about about she knew about him but on the other hand she was very frightened of him and um he wrote her letters prince philip duke of edinburgh wrote her letters from time to time which she kept in a mahogany box along with tapes <laughs> interviews she'd done with people and uh she called those um those items, her crown jewels. 
when she died and she was uh, her estate was nobody took charge let's put it like that her mother and her sister went there and burned a lot of letters but one of the things that happened was that her butler took away 330 or 320 items including the mahogany box including these letters and one morning at his house florist shop up in derbyshire at five o'clock in the morning the priest police mob handed surrounded the place raided it and up in the attic found all the items that he had taken from the princess's apartment at Kensington Palace. I believe that they weren't in the slightest bit interested in the dresses and the handbags and the bits and bobs. They were interested in the box. And the box has never been found, nor has its contents, ever since. And, of course, that raid led to Burrell being prosecuted for stealing these items. And in a most completely unprecedented set of events, the case was underway when the Queen intervened to say that, yes, she remembered. Burrell had discussed with her the fact that he was taking away the princess's items at her and, and agreed for, to him to do that. And over a long weekend, Alex Carlyle was the QC, one of the great and good of this country on every other committee or other. He was, he was Burrell's counsel. He will never say what happened over that weekend, but the case was suspended while things were sorted out because they didn't want Her Majesty the Queen appearing as a witness in one of her own courts of justice between before one of her own justices in a case argued by her own Queen's counsel. It couldn't possibly happen, could it? But whatever happened to the mahogany box and the letters? And what, what do you think was in the box? I mean, what did it say? You say well, the she letters that she had her. received, she had received it. And they, when those letters were produced, or some of them at least were produced at the inquests, they were completely redacted. It sort of said, dear Diana, and then regards par at the end. Everything else in between was completely blacked out. We will never know. But she was frightened. Of Prince Philip, her father-in-law, uh, she knew more about what goes on in the royal family than I did. She lived within it for fifteen years, and do you know what was absolutely outrageous? Is that there is nothing in our famously unwritten British constitution that says a royal prince or princess cannot appear as a witness at this moment. Prince Harry is limbering up for another session in the witness box in his cases against the Associated Newspapers, the Sun and others. In the 19th century, the Prince of Wales, who became King Edward VII, he appeared in two notorious uh, cases, Victorian cases. And you know, Princess Anne has been prosecuted for having a dangerous dog in more recent years. So there's nothing that says a member of the royal family cannot appear as a witness. But both Prince Charles and the Duke of Edinburgh were allowed not to appear 
at the inquest, and they sent well, Prince Philip sent along his uh, his private secretary. Well, that's how can you possibly send your private secretary to go and answer questions of which you are the only person who has uh, direct uh, knowledge of? Well, there, there you go, Andrew. You are our expert at getting hold of documents from inside the royal family. There's your new target. The mahogany box. Yeah. Well, do I think? don't think we're going to see those, but I mean, but do you think? Do you think that the establishment press is is interested in any of that? Of course they're not. Of course they're not. Well, I, I mean, we are probably running out of time, but it's. I, I really wanted to end by asking you about the crown, and and I know Andrew. We started with this. We never actually got round to it because the portrayal of Diana in this latest series is a bit downbeat and sad, isn't it? It's very much a victim. A lot of people who knew her then, or I've met, like Jefferson, say, well, she was funny and smart and flirty and professional, and she wasn't always sulking and sad. I don't know what you think of the way they've done it. Well, um, with regard to that, taking up your time, I, I respond to your questions. I don't. I respect you too much to give you brief answers. If you ask a question, you deserve at least some of the detail. Um, so, therefore, if I've been rather prolix... Uh, please forgive me. Oh, not at all. No, we love You're it. It's just, uh, we, we have have it <laughs> L- listen, I'm not down on the crown. The crown uh, is well written. Uh, it is well directed. It is mostly well acted. The first two series or seasons, as they love to call them, of the crown depicted a wise, witty, winning, um, and very, very beautiful young Queen Elizabeth II, played by Claire Foy, memorably. Those two seasons had Buckingham Palace purring, the courtiers hugging themselves with glee because they were a brilliant advertisement for a constitutional monarchy. Um, Later seasons have dealt with more troubled, times, more difficult questions, and scandals. And therefore, all the critics have come out with their heavy boots uh, and laid into them and pointed out uh, errors. And uh, then we had the spectacle of two former prime ministers, Blair and um, what's his name? Uh, Same age as me. Um, Major. John Major. John Major Ball. Uh, John Major giving the show a good kicking so that now it was bullied into having to put up a health warning at the start saying this is not uh, a documentary factual program. It is dramatized fiction. Well, of course it is. It is not a a fact-based documentary. What it is, it is drama and dramatic license is taken and of course, there are errors. Shakespeare's plays are plays are littered. Historical plays are littered with historical errors. But does that mean that they don't reveal greater truths? Uh, well, I don't think many people would have argued against that. Of course, they do. Is it true to the spirit of what happened? Is it is it is or is it falsehood? I th- think you have to except dramatic fiction or fictionalized drama and the action the accent has to be on fiction because uh, i hoped most earnestly that 
Peter Morgan, who is the uh, writer of this, is a brilliant man. I mean, nobody complained about his play about the Queen because it flattered the Queen, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a hugely talented man. Mm-hmm. This series has won uh, awards. It is a work of art. It is not a work of documentary reportage. But is it unfair? I think we mustn't uh, we mustn't overlook the fact that it will be extreme extremely painful for a lot of people to watch this. I'm stealing myself to watch it. I haven't watched this latest series because I hoped against hope that uh, Mr. Morgan and his team uh, would stop at the end of uh, season five, but they've gone on to season six, and that of course does involve the terrible deaths. The, ter- the circumstances are appallingly awful. I spent six months at the inquest le- learning and listening to the details of, of, of how they died. And it is an, it's a terrible it's a terrible story. I'm not looking forward to that. But my pain and my anguish is nothing compared with the families. And I'm quite sure that they will find it very, very, very difficult. Uh, Prince Harry, I know, uh, saw every last second of of what's been shown uh, to date, but he apparently, through some spokesman or other, has said that he won't be watching this because it will be too close uh, to what really happened, the death of his mother, the recreation. And also the fact that Diana is then depicted as a ghost. Well, do ghosts work as a dramatic device? Uh, Charles Dickens. Shakespeare Shakespeare thought they did. Well, I've never thought that Banquo's ghost works at all. Uh, Charles Dickens has got three in in Christmas Carol, but that's a Victorian fairy tale. I I don't know. Um, What uh, one episode, you you have the Queen talking to the ghost of Diana, the apparition of Diana, saying you really uh, turned the uh, turned the House of Windsor or turned us turned the us upside down and succeeded. Well, Diana was extremely patriotic. She had huge respect for the Queen. She was so patriotic that she was only allowed to choose one piece of music in her wedding because, of course, it was all orchestrated by her husband, who knows everything about music. And uh, she chose I Vow to Thee, My Country, the most patriotic hymn you could possibly think of. She. It also has... Uh, Prince Charles weeping over her corpse at the, at the hospital in, in Paris and her se- appearing as a ghost saying, I, I really did love you. Uh, well, that amount is true because she did tell her sons when they got divorced that, that they had been, her, par- their parents had been in love, in love when they married back in 1981. So that much it, it is true. But there are, I mean, the worst thing about this according to the accounts that I've read, is to say that Mohammed Al-Fayed contrived uh, their love affair, somehow orchestrated it. Well, Diana was 36 at the time. Diana uh, Dodi was 42. Okay. (laughs) Mohammed had many talents. He had many gifts. But it was impossible to make two adults fall in love with each other, even Perhaps Svengali could have done it, but Svengali was a fictitious um, evil magician. It's impossible to make two people fall in love, but they did fall in love. He was extremely pleased. He was delighted. He loved his elder son. 
Of course he did. And the family, Diana had been a family friend for many years, and her father and stepmother were extremely close to Mohammed over many years. And another thing, I mean, they, Dodie and Diana didn't just meet that summer. They met 10 years earlier. They knew each other on a social basis. It wasn't until that summer that they got together and they were romantically involved. And I revert to what I said several years ago with you, that she wouldn't have done anything that would have embarrassed her, her sons and, and uh, opened them up to bullying or ridicule at, at school. I don't think she would have gone with Dodie if she didn't intend it to be something lasting and, and personal. Whether well, they, I think we should probably have you back for, for answers as long as you like when you've seen it, because it's yeah. been so interesting talking to you. you know, it's wonderful. I mean, there's so much we want to talk to you about, so I hope you will be able to come so back. We've got an hour. We're going to do 30 minutes. <laughs> well, thank you. no, thank you so much for your time, and we would love very, to have you as part of our little podcasting gang um, going forward. Good, nice to speak to you. You nice too. To speak to you. Thank you so thank much, you, Michael. Michael. All the best, so, Andrew. When does when see, does you, see you in Madeira? This yeah, will come out on Monday, so we'll send you a link to it. Um, do you edit it, or do you run the whole thing? I'll probably th the very beginning. I'll chop off probably because. We we're just going on about, you know, how old I look. There's <laughs> <laughs> a bit of censorship goes on there. But otherwise, no, 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 I no. think this will give us a very good uh, um, episode. And I think it will interest a lot. Well, of I should think so. I, I won't send you the bill because I know it won't be paid. But um, <laughs> I'm so, I'm so, how did you do this? Did you do this with well, Morgan Stead? We did with it with Paul his Sparks. friend, Sparks. We'll send you the link to, to, to that. I, I don't know who he is. He was a TV producer who worked on the documentary that oh, interesting. started Morgan on his quest. Interesting. Well, it's fascinating. It is. Okay, well, good good to you. Lovely to meet you. My, my great pleasure. See you at Reeds. And that, yeah, and that charming wife of yours is much too good for you. Now I know She's that. far too good for me. She, <laughs> she does know that already. Shaved. Who knows? Uh, uh, I'm going to, but uh, you just better get, you let me have your dress. I'm going to send you that, um, that, that sort of Wilkinson sword razor blade. So. Yeah, well, I mean, not, I to, not to kill yourself. Well, you mentioned Kevin Costner. I was going for his look. <laughs> Talk to you later. Listen, listen, if Andrew and I can shave our mugs, so can you. <laughs> well, I probably can. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.